Hello and welcome to ADIPEC Energy Dialogues. This is a series of conversations that we're bringing to you in the run-up to ADIPEC 2020 in November, where we talk to analysts and experts around the world about news and views and what's happening in the oil and gas market, and of course, what's important to you. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Philip Whitaker. He is, of course, the partner and director for oil and gas in London with the Boston Consulting Group. Philip, thank you so much. Good to be here. Great, Philip. Now, we're going to talk today particularly about offshore, and I think this is really interesting because, of course, this is where there's a lot of focus. This is where there should be a lot of focus. This is, in many ways, where it all starts. But when we look at the oil market and we look at the last few weeks particularly, where has the, the damage been done, I suppose, in terms of how great that damage, particularly with the offshore sector? I think we need to separate it into operational damage and then the midterm commercial impact. Looking operationally, a couple of things have happened. Firstly, of course, operators have had dramatic pressure in terms of securing safety of their people, most important of all, and ensuring operational continuity. They've done a great job by and large, but there's been a huge learning curve and some fantastic collaboration across the industry in terms of testing, tracing, and adapting both the onshore, offshore, and marine logistics environments to make it work. A lot of drilling rig activity in many areas has been suspended to take people back on, onshore. And then finally, commercially, as I'm sure we'll talk about, there's gonna be midterm and long-term impacts depending on the duration of this low oil price environment. Indeed, but when we think about the offshore, it's the most expensive to develop. It takes the longest. Um, will it be longer than other sectors or other parts of the industry actually to come back? I think we need to start talking about offshore in a more nuanced and segmented way. You're absolutely right. Traditionally, offshore was clearly the most expensive, large projects, long payback times. But that's changed. Offshore has adapted. And we now need to talk much more around low cost, very cost competitive, fast cycle offshore, which remains competitive with a lot of shale and even some decent quality onshore reserves. And then the large, expensive, large host facility multi-year projects, which absolutely in this environment are really challenged. And of course, in a low price environment, I mean, this is, it's going to be tough for everybody. But again, on the offshore side, this low price environment, it's, you know, it scares investors on a good day. So particularly on the big project, what are you hearing out there? How are investors responding right now? It's going to be all around project quality and also in-year in cash flows to be able to continue those projects right now. For projects in flight, it's gonna be around continued delivery. Can we get the supplies? Can we get the people? And can we continue the drilling activity to deliver on work that will have production impact in the next one to two years? And then investors are, of course, they're looking for real capital discipline right now. So we can expect FIDs to fall from the 40s and 50s we've seen over the last couple of years very possibly into the low single figures, but investors have appetite for predictability and discipline right now. And that, that's what I think a lot of offshore operators will be showing. Now you've just said that all offshore, so to speak, is not created equally. So maybe bring us a little bit more in depth into those sort of sections, so to speak, and where we really need to be paying attention when we come and talk about the general offshore climate right now. Absolutely. I mean, it might be helpful to talk in terms of the value chain. So starting off with expiration, as always in these cycles, expiration is the first to, first to suffer, no immediate pain for pausing activity, and an enormous amount of offshore expiration has been paused right now. That's going to have impact on the seismic firms, geoscience firms, and some of the offshore drillers. 
moving into development activity that I mentioned, we're going to see a lot of pauses in major FIDs, but also potentially continuation of a lot of smaller tieback activity, fast cycle payback work, which still works in many basins at $30. And then finally, if we look into the operations, into the back end and into decommissioning, what we're going to see is some cessation of production accelerated. We're going to see some pauses of facilities, which may over time become permanent shut-ins. And we're going to see an acceleration in idle facilities, but not, and this is an important point, not necessarily of decommissioning of those facilities, which needs cash, which is something which is in short supply right now. Well, absolutely. And of course, when we look at decommissioning, this in itself is, is a huge job. It's a huge project. I wouldn't think it's probably top of the list. They might shut in right now, but they're probably not going to be looking at decommissioning. What do you think? Absolutely. Some research that we've looked at suggests that for 10 of the players with the largest liabilities off offshore, uh, their decommissioning liabilities are over 35% of their market caps right now. So whilst you're exactly right, the operators may not have decommissioning top of their agenda right now. Regulators and investors in many cases do, and there's increasing scrutiny around the ability to liquidate those liabilities. Talk to me about what the regulators can do in this in terms of can they, can they ease the situation or are they actually making it worse and putting more pressure on? Let's talk in terms of carrots and sticks. In terms of the carrots, depending on the fiscal systems applied to decommissioning in various basins, they can encourage decommissioning by easing the continuation of plans and approval of plans, accelerating cost recovery, where cost recovery can take place against decommissioning, and in general, really encouraging the continuity of decom, because that's what drives performance. In terms of the stick measures, one of the ones which is being most discussed right now is ensuring that idle iron doesn't build up. In the US, we have formal idle iron legislation, which limits the time for which a facility can remain idle. That doesn't exist in many other important basins. It's something that's on the mind of regulators right now. Otherwise, there's a real risk that we see a real buildup of facilities which have ceased production, but are yet to be removed. I like that term, idle iron. I mean, it's amazing all the new technology, I think, that is emerging particularly and becoming a little bit more mainstream uh, when we look at this crisis and what's going on with it. Talk to me a bit about when we're looking at, you know, not so much decommissioning, but a lot of oil has been taken off the market. A lot of wells are being shut. Is there, you know, of course there'll be consequences in this and how easy is it to get back in when the price comes back and hopefully more important than ever, I suppose, when that demand comes back, and some of it will. There's every possibility that what we're going to see come out of this in the midterm is a smaller but stronger offshore in many basins. A number of the mature field and late life assets, which have been sustained by relatively healthy oil prices over the past two to three years, combined with some really impressive cost cuts post the 2014 uh, downturn, many of those will not work in the midterm. So if we have a clean out in some basins of those facilities, what we're likely to see is an offshore, which actually is relatively sustainable at these prices and can work in the midterm. So as with any evolution, and we've seen it time and time again in EMP, I'm really encouraged by the ability of the industry to adapt to circumstance, grow continually stronger, and be there to deliver supplies in the midterm. But we have seen this time and time in the industry too, when the industry has been forced in many ways to cut back, to introduce efficiencies. And I believe it's really shown the resilience of this industry. 
are they going to have to reinvent themselves again and maybe in a very different way this time? Because it seems like this might be a longer span than what we've seen in the past. Historically, what we've often seen in these cycles is structural change via M&A, consolidation and scaling up. I'm less sure that that's the solution that we're going to see uh, going forward because that was all around scale, global reach and extensive capability. You became the Swiss army knife of the industry. The companies that are going to succeed in the years ahead, and we've already seen strategies in moving in this direction recently, are specialists, either technical specialists, basin specialists, or regional specialists. And offshore can be one of those specialisms. So what do I anticipate is greater high grading of portfolios and specialization, and also turning to the service sector side of things, more intimate relationships, not necessarily gen, you know, fundamental business collaborations, but tighter relationships, which perhaps emulate the supplier relationships we see in automotive, where there's a real acknowledgement of mutual dependency because the fat margins simply aren't there for anyone right now. Now, the service companies, of course, have been working hand in hand with the major international, the IOCs and the NOCs as well, a very, very vital part. What is the future for them in terms of, I suppose, the near term future? Because right now everybody is suffering. Absolutely. Post-2014, that cycle was all about removing margin from cycle to some sectors that have margin to remove. That isn't the case for anyone right now. I'd separate the service sector really into two simplified baskets. The first is the asset heavy businesses, the drillers, the offshore supply vessels, the heavy metal that is the lifeblood of offshore. That's been desperately tough for the last three to four years, structural overcapacity. And there's an acceptance now that we're not going to, in any scenario, move towards the activity levels of 2014 anytime soon. So that's a game of restructuring, both financial, but also fleet restructuring. The question for the others, the well services companies and the more technology-based companies, is how can they extract margin, technology differentiation, and a more stable, less cyclical business from their exposure to EMP? When we look uh, particularly at the technology, you see some of the big oil services companies almost rebranding themselves as technology companies. And really, we look at some of the standardization that's coming on board, the platform, the open platforms that are there, the accessibility in that. And also, I think in the last few years, this talk around partnership, this talk around been a very integral part of the project. Will that actually have to take maybe a stand back or will we see a resurgence in that when life gets back to some sense of normal? I'm actually quite optimistic. I think that this cycle may actually accelerate some of that. I've always been doubtful about genuine partnerships in terms of win-win, gain share, simply the asymmetry between the two sectors in terms of balance sheets and risk reward has really made that work. But in terms of really tight relationships which remove the friction in the system, and really, really bring the companies together to give, deliver great projects, I think could easily be accelerated because simply the business doesn't have the margin in it to be able to afford in inefficient, high friction relationships anymore. We look at unemployment around the world and we particularly look at unemployment in the oil and gas space. And this has been happening for a few years. The big crew change is going on. There's a lot happening in the industry, the great talent base, some of it will never come back. And again, at a time like this, is there a danger that we lose so much? And also perhaps, you know, we lose the momentum to attract engineers and to attract scientists and to attract bright new minds into this industry because this is not the first time it has happened. And 
This is also happening at you know a very different time in history, I guess. You know where we're right in not so much the middle of the transition of industry, but all of that in terms of the transition of energy use and application. You know, is forefront in everybody's mind. Absolutely, because and I think this type of talent crisis has changed from what we've been talking about in recent years. Because historically, we've been talking about volumes of talent and attracting engineers versus other industries. At the moment, we face two very distinct talent crises. The first is the demographic crisis of attracting younger people into what they see as a sunset industry. And the second one is around the type of talent we need fundamentally beyond geoscientists, beyond traditional engineers. We need to attract the data scientists, the digital scientists, those who are leading the digital revolution. And to be frank, they are very, very mobile. And we have to make EMP and offshore exciting for them and at the moment if what we offer them is a very very cyclical and insecure environment that's going to be a tough job how has digitalization actually impacted this industry i know we've talked about it a lot at every conference we've been at um, at adipec they put an awful lot of focus and attention on this as well but particularly in these last few weeks whereby they've had to take people away from the sites and actually depend you know, on technology. How has that changed? And will these practices, do you think, perhaps be the good legacy, if we can call it that, of what's been going on in the last few weeks? Absolutely. I think it's really exciting, the acceleration effect that the uh, measures of the last few weeks may have, both on society, but in particular offshore. A great example is one of our clients working um, in North Sea operations has had to demobilize about 40% of its traditional crew from their platforms and drop down to simply core production critical crew. But due to the application of wearable technology, digitized remote um, viewing and remote work planning, they're still able to liquidate over 90% of the planned maintenance uh, and integrity management activity that they have planned. So it really starts to drive us towards the use of technology to do more with less and with less people offshore, which has to be good for everyone. When we look at the strength, I suppose, that's coming back in the oil price, and we're beginning to see some communities around the world, some cities opening up, some flights coming back on board, so therefore everybody looking to some sense of demand coming back. What are you, you know, when you're talking to your clients, what's your projections if you can you know, enter into that space uh, in terms of the sense of demand coming back? And of course, you know, the market been driven by a sense of optimism right now. Yeah, I think there are two, two things. Firstly is the, the sheer volumes and the barrels, which look, uh, we, we can all speculate, but it's clearly going to be a multi-month journey and a long time before confidence returns to offshore. The question around that is, will some of the facilities that have been shut in temporarily potentially move into permanent shutdown? But I think the really important one is when does a sense of confidence return to the offshore? Because, and that's a question of barrels, it's also a question of psychology. Because once we have confidence returning to offshore, that's going to be when the investment decisions get made, the rigs can go back to work, and we can get this industry moving again. So closing up on this, when you talk to your clients, as you do, you're probably busier than ever. What's the, the hand-holding, I suppose, that you can do at the moment in terms of working with them and working through this? Because, um, again, you talk about duration. This could be with us for a bit longer. And indeed, I think when we look out to the end of the year, we have to look at the long-term implications of what's been going on with this global crisis. We're having a lot of conversations around first being fast 
in the spin, a, a crisis of this speed, speed of response is everything. And secondly, being really ambitious and to use this crisis as a springboard to create a stronger, more efficient offshore and a stronger, more efficient businesses. So a lot of what we're doing is looking at things which aren't incremental change, shaving a couple of percent, but asking really fundamental questions around what does a fantastic, sustainable offshore business look like for the midterm? And we're having some really exciting conversations around that. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, it's challenging for everybody. It's challenging, of course, for the operators, for all of the people on board, for all of the leaders in the industry, and of course, for all of you working with them. But great that you know there are people like yourself to be there to make sure that you know everybody can we're in this together as they say and i think for every industry everybody has to really depend on everyone else philip whittinger thank you so much for joining us from the boston consulting group um we're really grateful for your expertise and for your advice of course and your great knowledge that you're sharing with people thank you thank you and a big thank you of course to everybody at home thank you for joining us on adipec energy dialogues We'll keep bringing you up to date with news and views and what's going on in the market, of course, in the run-up to Adipec 2020 in November. So check in from time to time, stay with us, and uh, thank you all for joining us. Thanks so much.